0: Amen. It's good to be back with you today. Um, our family was away for a little vacation last week, but we missed um, we missed being here with you. We missed being able to to worship. Um, but I am thankful, and I want to acknowledge something. Um, I uh, am thankful that. We are blessed here in this church with, um, with humble, gifted men who will stand in this pulpit and preach the Word of God. Uh, it, it's a blessing for me to be back here to, to, to preach, but there is uh, there is a truth that the man in this pulpit is interchangeable, the Word of God is not, um, and so I'm thankful to be able to co-labor with with Michael in that ministry, and also to co labor with, with Jeff, who was here last week, to, to preach the Word of God and to do so um, ably. And so I simply pick up where he left off. We'll turn today to John chapter 12, uh, verses 9 through 19. This is a passage that we would normally think of at Easter time. It is, um, it is John's account of the triumphal entry. In fact, we, last Easter, looked at Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, but this is, uh, this is a passage that transcends a season. It transcends beyond Palm Sunday. <laughs> John, in his account, offers uh, a perspective that Is guided by the Holy Spirit and is needed for us today as He uniquely speaks to the deceitfulness and evil of sin. He speaks to the glory of Christ and to His intentionality in the gospel. And so, my prayer today is that, as has already been prayed, I would get out of the way. The man in this pulpit is less important than the word being preached. And I pray that you would hear the word of God this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus, whom He had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus. the world has gone after him this is the word of the Lord man let's uh, let's pray Father we ask that that you would um, you would open this word for us that you would draw us in to hear and to be transformed by the Savior who would enter in peace, give us hearts to experience his peace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the proverbial frog in the pot lives in a certain state of danger. <laughs> but that frog in the pot is blind to the danger of the water that is heating up all around them. He's become desensitized, so to speak. Desensitized to, um, to his circumstances, uh, desensitized to his situation. And the heat that rises around him, uh, it, it, it hides his peril. Some of us are experiencing the same danger. Some of us are, are also blinded to the peril that surrounds us, and no, I am not talking about boiling water. We grow numb to our circumstances, but more importantly, we grow numb to our sin. We grow numb to the sin that rises up within us and begins to take over the entirety of our being. And so what are we to do when we are numb to our our hearts? Well, we need a voice to speak in. We need an outside voice that will expose within us our true need. Recently, I through a 360 degree review process. Are you familiar with the 360 review? The 360 review is, is where uh, a group of, of um, ministry partners, a um, group of peers, a group of uh, co-workers would, would offer uh, feedback from all different directions. It's, it's needed feedback because so often we tend to follow a a certain path blinded to our surroundings, blinded to our own actions, just simply following that well-worn path. And we need others who, who know us and are willing to offer that feedback, but we also need to listen. The purpose of the 360 feedback process is is to, in some cases, offer encouragement about where things are going well, but it's also to expose those areas where we need to grow. You know, the Word of God does the same. The Word of God speaks into our lives, encouraging and exposing our true self. The Word of God points out those areas in our lives where we can, tend to be deceived, we must listen. But more than self-help, the Word of God reveals our true state, but it also reveals Jesus. The Word of God uh, points to the salvation that is freely offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must listen. This passage is revealing. It's revealing using uh, the picture of that Palm Sunday when Jesus entered in. It reveals differing responses to Jesus. And in so doing, it reveals something within us. It also points to Jesus and the implications of his entrance into Jerusalem and into our lives. So my prayer is that we would listen to this word today, that we would consider the state of our own hearts, we would consider the implications of Jesus' entrance, not merely into Jerusalem, but inside us. I'll start with two responses to Jesus' signs. So that the Bible reveals, well, in verses 10 and 11, the Bible revealed an ugly picture. An ugly picture of sin. Did you hear it? So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. It was on account of him many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Sometimes we can be lulled to sleep by sin. We can tend to think of sin as a a naughty little bit of fun. The culture around us will do that. The culture around us seems to turn up the, the heat on sin, but to do so at a pace that, that we would miss. You hear it in, in things like uh, the, the tourism board and for the city of Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You're not hurting anybody. Just have a little fun. We get lulled to sleep thinking that sin is not going to hurt others or us. But the picture in this text gives us a far different, far darker image. It points us to the progressive nature of sin. The Pharisees, they didn't start out with a desire to kill an innocent man named Lazarus. No, they started out with pride. Pride in their own goodness. But that pride in their own goodness began to develop into self-righteous legalism. That grew into a desire to protect their own religion, or maybe more importantly, their place within their religion, and quickly it turned into something far more sinister. We've already heard they were hardened in their desire to kill Jesus, but now it's gone beyond merely killing Jesus. Lazarus is walking around. And others are seeing Lazarus and now they've got to deal with him. What is it revealing? That that sin is like rigor mortis. It, It begins to take over and to harden until the hardening is complete. For the Pharisees, the verdict is in. Their verdict, that is. Their verdict of judgment on jesus and now on lazarus even though the evidence would would point to the contrary what was the big deal about lazarus well you remember that in our time in john we've been looking to a series of signs john points out seven signs and those signs as he tells us later in john chapter 20 are meant To point us to the true identity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That He is the Son of the living God. He gives us these signs that we might believe. And that by believing we might have life in His name. The signs throughout John, they come to a climax in Lazarus as Jesus would take Lazarus and raise him from the dead. We spent multiple weeks in John chapter 11 looking at that miracle In the signs that John offers, the signs that are meant to be points of evidence to the true identity of Jesus, Lazarus is exhibit A. But Lazarus is not locked away in in the evidence room for safekeeping. No, he's walking around. He's walking around for all the world to see. The miracle, the miracle of his resurrection was not in dispute. There was no expert witness that could discredit the testimony. The case was airtight. Jesus was the Messiah. And yet... The chief priests refused to be changed by the facts. Instead, they sought to destroy the evidence. Imagine in your mind if there was a prosecuting attorney who, who sought to prosecute a crime, and that prosecuting attorney would would weigh out the evidence, but somewhere along the way, this fictional prosecuting attorney decided that they were right and they were going to follow their course of action regardless of what the case would show and somewhere in this case some evidence was revealed that that changed the entire course but that prosecuting attorney somewhere along the way became more interested in winning than they were in justice and so the competing evidence had to be destroyed Here in the progressive nature of sin as the Pharisees sought to even kill Lazarus because he was the evidence of the power and might of Jesus. People were following after Jesus because of what they saw in Lazarus. It's a picture of the folly and deceitfulness of sin, sin that hardens and causes us to lash out. That was the picture in verse 10. It grew deeper in verse 19. See, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. For the Pharisees, the chief priests, their desperation is growing. It's now the time to act. It's a picture of the path of progressive sin that we see in them, but it's a warning to us. And yet, in this passage, there is another response to Jesus' signs that is represented. It's the response of the child whose heart, rather than being hardened to Jesus, is soft to Jesus, or maybe rather has been made soft. The children I'm talking about are represented in the Palm Sunday worshipers in this text. I'm calling them children looking to... Verse 15, the daughter of Zion. Verse 15 is, is a citation from an Old Testament passage, Zechariah nine. Zechariah is there speaking of one who would come, and, and would come into the royal city, humble and mounted on a donkey. There speaks of the daughter of Zion. The daughter of Zion is the church. It speaks of the church in, in familial language. Speaking of the true church, the true children of God. They've gathered here this day, Palm Sunday, to worship. Well, let's be careful. Verse 16 tells us that the disciples didn't understand what was going on that day. If the disciples didn't understand what was going on that day, Neither did the worshipers. Verse 16 tells us that the disciples would later, upon the the coming of the Holy Spirit in power, the disciples would remember by the inspiration of the Spirit. And by the, the, the remembrance of the Word of God, all that had been said about Jesus and had been done to Him, the Holy Spirit brought all of this together for the disciples. If the disciples didn't understand, neither did the worshipers. But far too often, I'm too quick to point out the false worship of those worshipers. After all, later that week, many of them would turn against Jesus. But Before we go too quick to point out their false worship, John offers a nuance in this account. In verse 17, he tells us that those worshipers were bearing witness to Jesus. But in the trial that was going on, those worshipers were testifying to Jesus' identity. Whether they understood all that was taking place or not, God was using them in His sovereignty to bear witness to the King of Kings. Did they fully understand? it? No. But on some level, they were worshiping by crying out, Hosanna. past Palm Sunday, I said we looked to Matthew's account. and In that sermon, we tried to unpack Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118, two passages that come together in the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday. We, we, We unpacked those passages and that meaning on that day, but we saw that this cry of Hosanna came from Psalm 118. You won't see the word Hosanna in Psalm 118. You see a couple of different words. The meaning behind Hosanna, save us. The worshipers that day were crying out, Hosanna, save us. The Pharisees, they sought to kill their rivals, but the children of God, they offered out worship through a cry of humility. Save us, by definition, means we need saving. And in that humble act of acknowledging we need saving, they worshipped the king. Let me ask you this. How often does someone ask you, how are you doing, and you simply offer a fine? I'm good. When in reality, you're hurting, in desperate need for help. We do it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we do it because we understand that if somebody asks you how you're doing, they're simply offering small talk. We don't want to distract the direction of conversation, so we we capitulate. Fine. But on a deeper level, we say fine because our pride won't allow us to express need. It starts out there. But the problem is, at some point, you start to believe it. At some point, you start to believe that you don't have a need. The Word of God is speaking to us all. It's exposing within us the danger of the hardening impact of sin, the hardening impact of pride, and so beware. Beware of the hardening of sin. Beware of the numbing impact of sin. So how are we to, how do, how are we to beware? How are we to, to put our antennas out for what is actually going on inside of us? Well, on a very practical level, I want to commend to you the prayer that we have already prayed today in our confession of sin. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. I want to commend that prayer to you and call you to make it your own, to pray it boldly. We need this because we need that outside voice and the Holy Spirit is that outside voice invited in through this prayer. The problem is we can grow numb to the ugliness of sin and verses 10 and 11 in this passage present a very ugly picture the chief priest who would seek to kill Lazarus. We grow numb as it grows within us. We become entrenched in our own sin patterns. Maybe it starts out as a simple search for self-pleasure in, in small ways. The desire for self that leads us ultimately down a path of destroying the covenant family. Maybe it's a desire for something to change in the world around us, but it grows into an embrace of political bitterness that develops some new form of earthly salvation. Whatever it is for you, I can't answer that, but the Holy Spirit will guide you. And so embrace the prayer of Psalm 139 by praying, Lord, remove the mask of sin so that I see its ugliness. Show me how I've allowed myself to get comfortable with certain sins and in showing them to me, remove them from me. Give me the awareness and strength to fight sin. John is hes exposing the different responses to Jesus' sign, the hardening of the heart and the softening of the heart. And that's part of what he's teaching us in this text, the the different responses to Jesus. But he also does so in the context of an event. It's the event of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And as he writes about it there in verse 13, he he identifies that this, this entrance is the entrance of the king, the king of Israel. The people may not have fully understood it, but on some level they were ascribing kingship to Jesus. How about us? What does that mean for us to ascribe kingship to Jesus? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks in question 26, how does Christ execute the office of a king? It answers that question. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus is king. And he entered into his royal city that day. His kingship has implications for us and for them. We see those those implications in the text. How will we respond? To his children, the king says, fear not. Fear not. Verse 15, we've already said, is is a citation of of Zechariah 9.9. But if you looked in Zechariah 9.9, there are a couple of words there that you would not see. John adds them. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he adds two powerful words. Fear not. He seems to be combining the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9 along with the word from Isaiah. Isaiah 40 and and 44. Where the Spirit is pointing to a time when when a humble servant would come. A a suffering servant. A suffering servant who would come to his chosen and beloved children. Suffering servant who came is Jesus. He came that day in meekness, but he will come again in power to judge his enemies and to gather his own. But because he came in meekness, those then and now who cry out to him as he is offered in the gospel, those who cry out to him in need, those who cry out in desperation saying, Save us. Those who do cry out can anticipate His coming and power with rejoicing. With softened hearts, we can find confidence in, and hope in Christ. We can find confidence and hope in the gospel because a soft heart equals a humble heart. Listen, i not... I want to invite you to join me in taking great joy in verse 16. I don't know about you, but I celebrate the fact that this worship was taking place even though the people worshiping didn't have it all put together. I celebrate the fact that they didn't know what was going on. But they worshiped. They worshiped the Savior. Because that worship was appropriate of one who had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead it is appropriate for us because he has the power to raise us from the dead and they worshiped even though they didn't have it all figured out practically for us that means that we can be ruthlessly honest in the fight against sin in the fight against the deceitfulness of sin we can ask the question we must ask the question whose kingdom Am I building? Am I about the kingdom of God? If I'm about the kingdom of God, then I am about the kingdom of God because I am accepted in Christ by His sacrifice, not by my righteousness, not by my goodness. And if I am accepted in Christ, if I am about His kingdom, then nothing will be a threat to me. All is for my good. I'll soften my heart to receive from Him the feedback that He is giving from His 360-degree review because I'll know that that feedback in the Word of God is meant for me to grow more and more in the image of my blessed Savior. I'm about the kingdom of God, Then I do so because I'm accepted by Christ, and I can celebrate Jesus even in the heart Even in the challenge, knowing that he's not done with me yet. If, on the other hand, I'm not about the kingdom of God, but I'm building the kingdom of self, well, then I'm going to continue to be deceived. Secondly, any input I receive from the Word of God or the body of Christ will be received as a threat. Remember that 360 review I talked about? If I'm all about my personal kingdom, I can't receive challenging feedback. I can't receive it from others. I can't receive it from the Word of God. If I'm about my personal kingdom, I will shut out challenge. I don't want to hear it. It's false. And in doing so, I'll continue down the path of deceit. And that path has a far different implication than the implication for the children of God. The enemies of the king, they should be afraid. Jesus is coming into his royal city in this text, and he is a different kind of king. Verse 15 draws that out for us, that he is a humble king. He's not coming into Jerusalem this day on a war horse. He is coming in humble and mounted on. On a donkey. Because he has come to usher in peace. A peace that will be earned through his death on the cross. But do not mistake meekness for weakness. Do not mistake meekness for weakness. By their hardening the Pharisees have set themselves up as enemies of the living God. And you and I do the same when we persist with hearts hardened towards sin. John offers the Pharisees up as an illustration in this text of the danger of hardened hearts. But later, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, we find a warning not for the Pharisees but for us us in the covenant community, that we remain steadfast. Here's the warning we find in Hebrews 10, 26-31, a warning meant for you and I, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, we are warned about following the same path as the Pharisees who were hardened in their own self-righteousness, in their own sin. So be warned. But praise be to God. In addition to a warning, there's an invitation We're invited to receive. This passage exposes, but this passage is also a beautiful picture of grace. I've already said that the worshipers that day didn't understand. And I I take great comfort in knowing that Jesus saves those who don't fully understand. Did some of them turn away? Yes. And that's the reminder for us to be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. But Jesus knew all of that. He wasn't swayed. He was steadfast. Because He was God's appointed Messiah and He came to fulfill His mission. A mission He fulfilled on the cross where He bore the wrath of God for the children of God. The children of God in that day and the children of God in this day. Jesus fulfilled His mission for you and I. It was a mission of grace whereby we are saved through faith in Christ. The worshipers that day may not have fully understood it, but they cried out, Hosanna. They cried out, Save us. And they cried out, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They were singing Psalm 118, and John tells us they sang verses 25 and 26. Maybe they didn't understand the verses that preceded those, but I invite you to listen and rejoice as I close by taking us back to Psalm 118, verses 19 through 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Beloved, we can rejoice. We can be glad because Jesus is the gate. He is the gate of righteousness for you and I that our righteousness might be in Him. He is the cornerstone, the rock upon which we stand. With hearts softened to Him, let us do just that. Let us stand in His righteousness alone. Lord God, this is a picture of Jesus, our Redeemer, entering into the city of Jerusalem to to secure our salvation on the cross. I pray that you would give us hearts to receive this word. Hearts softened to our own pride, to our own self-righteousness, to our own Sin and hardened by the deceitfulness of that sin. Soften us to proclaim our need and to receive our Savior. Do this, we ask, in Christ's name.